thinking of situations to where you're working with a couple and they're having conflict as it relates maybe to work-life balance. What she's seeing is you're always at work. You're never here with the family. But what he's seeing is, but I'm working so that we have all this money so that we can go on these vacations. And so really it's just communicating what that word actually means, what is being there for the family mean. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. For all of those returning listeners, Thank you. I appreciate you coming back. And for the new listeners, welcome. We are glad you are here today. I am excited for you to hear today's conversation with Dr. Sonia Luter. Dr. Luter is incredibly insightful. She has a wide ranging background. She's the program director at Texas Tech, the owner of Enlight World. She's an author with a wonderful workbook that we discuss in detail on today's episode. Dr. Luter's work has been featured in many of the major news outlets, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many prominent academic journals where her research has directly influenced this fascinating world of financial psychology. Over the years, numerous of guests have told me I need to have Dr. Luter on the podcast, so I'm grateful that today we had this wonderful conversation. Money is a sensitive topic, and it's not uncommon to see it causing conflict in our relationships. And this is where Dr. Luter's research, practice, and expertise comes into play. In this insightful conversation, Dr. Luter shares her knowledge and experience to help us understand why our money conflicts are rarely just about the money, and how we can engage in healthy and effective reflective exercises to bring more awareness to our relationships with our money and partners. I know you don't need me to say this, but money, it's an essential part of our lives, and it's something that we all have to deal with in our relationships. Dr. Luter brings her extensive experience and expertise as a certified financial planner, marriage family therapist, researcher, and professor to provide us evidence-based exercises to help us understand our money relationship and to bring awareness to our core values. This was such an enjoyable conversation for me. You can hear and even feel, feel through the microphone, just how much Dr. Luter cares about this conversation, this topic of love and money. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Sonia Luter. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I was just sharing with you that a few guests have asked me why I haven't had you on the podcast. And here you are. So I'm excited for today's conversation. Uh, me too. And it would be so much fun to have the former guest and me here together. You mentioned some of their names and they're wonderful people. So we'll have to try that sometime. Well, yeah, let's do that. That'd be a lot of fun. I could just sit and watch you guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of former guests, I'm going to bring up a former guest here. And the reason why I think it helps our listeners get a bit of understanding of you and your story. And to prepare for this question, in life, we often meet people along our life's journey. At the time, we may or may not realize the impact that they had on our lives. And the interesting part is, after life unfolds, we can look back and reflect and see that this person, A, did have a meaningful impact, or maybe not. 
But I believe Ted Klontz is one of those individuals that had quite the impact on you from what I understand when you're in your graduate program. Let's start with Ted Klontz and the idea of mentors. What significance did meeting Ted have in your school at that time have on you at that point in your life? And reflecting back on the years, however many years it's been, how has that relationship continued to influence you? You can tell because we're on video recording this, but for everybody else, like that just, it almost melts me because he's such an impactful person in my life. And I didn't know as you were setting up that question, how impactful he would be in my life. But the way this all happened was I was working on my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And it was pretty early on into the program. I was there because I wanted to bring personal finances into the therapy setting. This was before really anybody was doing anything financial therapy oriented. So here I am with my new therapy colleagues and they don't want anything to do with money. And I'm talking with my friends who I just graduated college with and they're in financial planning and they don't want to have anything to do with emotions or crying with their clients. And so I was feeling a little lost, but here I am in this therapy program. And one of our very first assignments was to find somebody working in this setting or doing what you wanted to do after graduation. I thought, like, there's nobody out there. I, I think I'm alone. And lo and behold, I found Ted Klontz. I was going to school in Kansas. He was out in Tennessee at the time. And so I cold called him. I said, hey, doing this assignment. And I think that you're doing something that I'm really interested in. And he picked up the phone and we had the most delightful conversation. And it was just so warming to know that there were other people doing what I wanted to do and that he was right there with me and he wanted to help me. So after that conversation, he invited me to a summer camp where it was targeted for families, lower income families who didn't really have a good trajectory in terms of opportunities available to them. So this camp was to bring these families together and give them a once in a lifetime experience to share each other's presence. And so it didn't really have anything to do with money, but it was so great to make that further connection. That's where I met Brad Klontz. And then it just continued developing from there. I went out to OnSite, which is what Ted was running at the time. And it's a, a financial therapy workshop to where people go for four days, I think. And they learned about their relationship with money. And this is where I met Rick Kaler. And the combination of them was truly magnificent. And we later went on and developed the Financial Therapy Association together and Ted's the person I can call up today if I wanted to and just say, hey, you know what? I don't know what my purpose is in life. I literally did this a few months ago and we had such a wonderful conversation. And I think it's hard to find those people who will give you that time and space and sharing your excitement. Thank you for sharing that. And I definitely can feel the admiration you have towards Ted just in your answer. And the last part, you just said I could call him up and he can help guide you or help you figure out the, your purpose. I released an episode with him yesterday and the conversation was a week ago. And after our conversation, I stared at my screen as I just had like so many aha moments or thought provoking things. And I was interviewing him. What do you think it is about Ted from your background as a therapist that we can draw out and learn when we want to start communicating effectively with others? What does he possess? What is his way of being that is so attractive? He talks in stories. So now you're not even going to listen to me because you're going to reflect back on that conversation. <laughs> but he's magnificent at talking in stories and he can give analogies that help people connect where they are on a roadmap with where they actually are on that map. And people generally have kind of some loose ideas that are all disconnected. And Ted listens and he hears all of those disconnected pieces. And then he's able to give you a story that helps you see how each one of those things are connected. 
And it's a rare talent, I think, to be able to talk in those analogies and those stories in a way that he says very little, but yet you gain so much. Because all what he's doing, I've heard him talk about it before in terms of you've just been circling the block and I helped you find what you were looking for on that block. Yes, that's exactly right. It was there the whole time. I'd just been circling around it over and over again. And he has a beautiful way of helping you stop and be like, oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, that's that's truly powerful. And I think uh, what, as we get into your book about love and our... Uh, yeah, you had it right. Love and money. Love and money, yeah. I mean, at that part, love and money, uh, couples was coming to my head. Love and money. Yeah, we can take those learnings from from Ted in on how he helps us realize that we're just circling the block and how we can bring that to our, our coupleships. Now, in lines of stories, you said Ted talks about stories. In your book, in the italic writing, there's some stories at the intro of each chapter. Are those your stories when you say I, or are those other people's? Those are other people's stories. Some of them are mine. You can't tell which ones just by okay. reading. Yes, okay. Some of them are mine. Oh, because I got a question on one of them. Is is the father who is an entrepreneur your story? That one is not my story. Okay. But so I had students who were helping me test the curriculum. And I also, we also pulled stories from the couples that we were working with. But that one's from one of my former students. So ask your questions and let's see if I can. Well, my question, my question was, and it's not really going to be applicable, but in my head, I was curious because I also heard that you had married your husband while he was $250,000 in debt. And my question was, if, if this is your father's story, and for those listening, the story was his father was going into debt and it was just a custom that debt was part of a business cycle. And the, the belief that came out of there was it will get paid back at some point. And my question was going to be, did this belief help you think it's okay to marry my this individual with quarter million dollars in debt? <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't your story. <laughs> that wasn't my story. But here's why I did marry him, even with a quarter million dollars in debt, was because we were able to have that conversation. And some of my research has pointed towards those very early conversations and early arguments about money in particular are more predictive of later relationship satisfaction than what's going on later on in the relationship. So the ability to have a calm conversation as it relates to money early on really is probably the key to relationship success. I know I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's definitely high up there in terms of what's happening early on financial-wise, very predictive of later satisfaction. Less to do with how much money you're making, less to do with how much wealth you've accumulated all about being able to communicate about money. So we had that conversation on our first date and I don't even remember how it came up upon it. Like I've thought about this over the years, like why in the world were we talking about debt? But it worked out great to be able to have that conversation. I don't think that's normal on the first date. Yeah, no, I, I mean, on my first date, I used a coupon with my wife. We didn't talk about money, but I'm sure she was thinking, this guy's, this guy's cheap. Or resourceful. <laughs> Resourceful. I know that was my money script. Actually, no, I think about that. I looked at it that way, but I think it's such fascinating research. And just to be clear, so it was the earlier conversations or conflict you have in your relationship, the more satisfaction is predicted later on. Yes. The research actually was done the opposite way. So what we looked at was what was the frequency of your money arguments? And then we followed them. And then over time, the people who argued a lot at the beginning of their relationship, reported lower relationship satisfaction down the road. And that's controlling for a whole lot of other things. Right. Um, and that's even more impactful, believe it or not, than an increase in arguments about money over time. So yeah, as you're thinking, here's my conclusion. Tell me what you think. But I think it has to do with your values. And if you're not aligned with your values, that's the moment that you're having those arguments is right then early on in the relationship when your value of resourcefulness was loud and clear, right? If your wife, girlfriend, did not align with that value, like she she made some sort of connection, whether it was resourceful or cheap or whatever. If she didn't like that value, that could have either caused a conversation or an argument or probably just wouldn't have went on the second date. 
that was the moment where an argument could have mm-hmm. In my head, what I was thinking is that say that there was a conflict in her value and she spoke up or, or anyone's situation, bringing that up would give us an opportunity to learn how to communicate or even to become clear. Because I find it so fascinating with money is that, and you talk about how often money conversations are really about values, but even early in our lives, I know for myself, it, I think it's really hard to actually be clear on our values. And I say this, that like, you know, we do these value exercises, but to really know our authentic values, I think is a life's work. And in my head, I was thinking that this idea of early conflict, if we know how to communicate, could teach us how to effectively lean into those discomforts that might be there versus avoiding them and uh, ignoring them. I absolutely agree. And I love that you say that about values being a life's work, because I think it's so much easier for other people, outsiders to come and be like, well, that's clearly what you value. You're like, no, I don't. Or it's not quite as obvious to us, but it's really quite obvious to other people in terms of our actions, what we value. And yes, they might have a different interpretation to it, but I think that they have a much better insight into those things that we value more than anything else. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest for couples? And in the, in the book, you talk a lot about the values alignment is the chapter for couples to start this exploration process of really a understanding my own values, but then being okay, I think is the way to say it, that my spouse, my couple, my partner might have different values. And how do you, how do you start to make sense of this, I guess, this idea of acceptance that they might value something differently in this realm and, and that's okay, as opposed to that being a constant conflict in a relationship that, oh, they don't believe we should save this way. I'm going to hold that tight-fisted and think that they're wrong for that belief. Yeah. It goes back to having those calm conversations. And I'm thinking of a couple working with who came. I had them do that exercise. And they came with six different values. What they said were six different values. And as we started talking them through... It turns out they really had a core set of three values. They were using different words. But as you elaborate on what does balance mean for me? And it might mean the same thing as what a different word means for them. So I think we get a little bit fixated on the actual word sometimes versus what the meaning of it is. So going back a a little bit further in the conversation, but just in terms of sometimes it's easier for other people to see what we value. I'm thinking of situations to where you're working with a couple and they're having conflict as it relates maybe to work-life balance. Let's go with the male-female couple and the male says, well, I really value our time together and creating this sense of family. Well, what she's saying is you're always at work. You're never here with the family. But what he's saying is, but I'm working so that we have all this money so that we can go on these vacations. And so really, it's just communicating what that word actually means in terms of being there for the family. I'm using air quotations as the listeners can see, but you heard it in the voice, right? What does being there for the family mean? For him, it means being able to provide financially so they can have these big extravagant experiences. But for her, she was using the same words. Being there for the family was also very important for her. But her, for her, that meant being there at dinner time and being available to go to the school function. So I think we get a little too fixated on the words is what I'm saying. And, and really just the ability to have that conversation in a calm fashion is so much harder than it seems. And you asked me what I wanted to be sure to, what I needed to discuss. (laughs) What I need to discuss is stress because it's such a huge part of our lives. And we're very good at telling ourselves that we are not stressed. But in reality, when we are in this heightened physiological stress state, we cannot trick ourselves out of that state. 
we cannot have these calm conversations with our significant others or with our children or with our friends as it relates to money. So heightened physiological stress. More or less, this means the fight or flight response mechanism. And when we feel that we are being attacked, so you don't agree with my values or I think you don't agree with my values, I immediately either shut down or try to run away from that conversation. And when that happens, our fingertips literally get colder because the blood is flowing back up to our heart to prepare for this physical reaction of whatever it might be. And so I might say, yeah, I'm calm. I can have this conversation. But no, my fingertips are actually freezing cold right now because I get anxiety with talking with people. Even though I don't know who the listeners are, it just gives me anxiety knowing that other people will be listening. So my fingers are cold because I'm anxious. And that is something you cannot trick. And this is super valuable for couples because we hold each other's hands and I can learn what it feels like to have cold hands. And I can learn what it feels like for my partner to have cold hands. And so I know when my partner's in a heightened physiological stress state. And I know that that's not a time that we are going to be able to come to any sort of resolution as it relates to getting on the same page with our values and goals. Because when we're also in that straight state, so our hands are cold, but also our mind is thinking about preparing self or saving self. So this is all about my self-preservation right now. And I'm not thinking logically thinking very short-term, very emotion-focused. I mean, there's so many research studies in various disciplines that looks at this to where basically nothing productive is going to happen in that state. Donya, this is why, I'm going to use this word, need. This is why our industry, the financial planning industry, need individuals like yourself to bring this research, to bring this awareness. As a trained financial planner, our brains were taught to think this way. Yet, we know we've seen the surveys and research after research that money is consistently one of the top stressors in our relationships and individual lives and our coupleships. And what you described there is so, so important that this is a physiologic or, or physical reaction that no matter how much I might try to explain to my partner that they're overspending or show them a budget, show them the retirement plan is blowing up, they're feeling attacked and they're defensive and they're not going to be able to, to absorb or receive the information. In these states, say our fingertips are, uh, are, are, are getting cold. While I read that in the book, I was thinking that there's, there's got to be some sort of new invention that's created that uh, somehow, I don't know, you swallow something and it could read your, it could read your fingertips and it tells your other partner, don't talk right now, five minute break. But uh, I'm pretty sure that smartwatches can already do that. They just haven't released that technology oh, okay. a while. Yeah, that, that's better than swallowing something. But yep. outside of this smartwatch, what would you advise couples to do when, when we're starting to feel that heightened, heightened state? What can we do to help neutralize the conversation so that we can go and have an actual relational conversation around the, the money issue? I would say call the elephant the elephant and say, hey, look, it seems like you're getting a little bit stressed. My husband will say, wow, why are your hands so cold? Like we've had this conversation multiple times. And so I know whenever he says, why are your hands so cold? That we just need to take a break because there is more going on. And I feel myself when he calls me out that I do take a deep breath and be like, okay. And then I'll say what's actually on my mind. But unless you call it out, we'll just keep pretending like it's not there. And that's not helpful for anybody. So let's call it out, first of all. And then there's lots of ways that we can kind of get back on track in short-term and long-term. In short-term, the physical act of standing up and walking to a different room, walking outside if weather permits, is such a great way to reset your physiological state. And everybody has a thermometer these days. Like, try it out. Test your temperature at different places and then go walk around and see what impact this has on your body. People would be like, oh, it's just because I was walking around. Okay, fine. So sit down for five minutes and then do it. And I guarantee you'll be able to see changes. It's very quick in terms of 
this blood flow and how quickly you can see the change in your physiological state. So call it out with your partner if you're having these conversations together. If you're working with somebody as a client and you notice these signs of heightened physiological stress, hand temperature is such an easy one to do in in in-person settings, not quite as easy as we're sitting in front of the screen together. But as you teach yourself what cold fingers look like, you start recognizing the other thing that's going on too, like the fidgeting in the chair or eyes looking around at different places or the shoulders that are a little bit higher than what they normally are. So you start noticing these things more, even on a screen when you're not physically in the same room as the other person. And then just suggest taking a break. And if you're on Zoom or other sort of video platform, to actually take a step back, sit back and away from your screen and show them that, okay, I see that something's not quite right. Let's just take a breather and be like, tell me what's on your mind today. It's really that simple, but also so hard. I've had my students do this before. I have them do mock sessions and they'll say, I don't know, it's just a natural tendency that we we tend to end a conversation with a person. Is there anything else? And that allows for yes or no. And I say, just try saying, tell me what else is on your mind. And they have such a hard time doing that. But yet you're going to get such a different response. Yes or no is not an option for that question. That's just a way to allow people to, you're opening the door for a conversation in terms of what is the most stressful thing for them. Maybe they're not stressed at all. And then they'll be like, nothing else. And that's great too, right? But if they are stressed, you will know by their response. You'll know because they'll say the thing or you'll know because they're really fishing around for for what they don't want to say. And when you said calling, like naming things, like is it beneficial or could it be, like say they, you said, is there anything else? And there people are maybe afraid, they don't feel safe enough to say what the, the thing is, to say that I feel like, I don't know, you have more to say. Something like that, like to actually say your thoughts or can that be more more damaging to the conversation? I think it's a personality thing, but I definitely do that. But just to be totally clear, I would not recommend saying, is there anything else? Don't do that one. I would say, tell me what else is on tell your me, mind. Oh, yeah. Very important distinction. I actually do that. It'd be like, you know, it seems like there might be other things that you're wanting to discuss or other things that might be on your mind. Tell me what else you would like to discuss. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's totally fine to say, I see you. I hear you. I am here with you. Tell me what else. Yeah. And that's what I was really, I was thinking it is that helping the person see that I'm not just in my defensive like, wild child mode of defending myself. I actually can recognize that. I, I noticed some, maybe some discomfort in you. Which is so hard to do. Oh, yeah. I think it's hard for people to do that when you're on a tight time schedule. And this is part of the daily stressors of life. I've got another appointment in an hour, so we got to wrap this up. And if I ask an open-ended question, I don't know where it's going. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, we designed these lives that are quite time-stressed. Time and to your point earlier about stress is it, it definitely impacts how we speak. And the last part on this communication, I, I, I just think the communication part is so critical. And I say that because my point of view as a financial planner, I've seen so many disagreements. And now that I start, I'm starting to learn more about the, the, the emotional side of money, I realize it's a lack of communication, not financial literacy or knowledge. Can you just touch on the I and you statements that you discuss in the book? I think intuitively we know these, but in the moment, it's one of those things that are a little little more difficult to actually do. So could you just talk about what is the difference and how it can help bring that more relational conversation? Yeah, you are a good podcaster, Sean. Like, just as I started doing that though, right? Like you get a little bit of anxiety in terms of, oh gosh, how is she going to describe me? Or what is she going to say did or didn't do? So just saying the word you, even when something positive comes after it, can put people in a slightly anxious state. When something negative comes after it, it definitely puts somebody in a defensive state. Why did you spend the money on that today? Well, 
hold on. <laughs> I had a reason for doing it versus something. I feel like we had an agreement in terms of what we were going to budget this week or X, Y, Z. I noticed there was something else. Can you tell me more? Much different response, right? Like, I feel like we had that conversation. I thought we had a conversation versus you didn't do what we said we were going to do. Maybe I misremembered it. Maybe I didn't. But just starting the statement with I immediately helps to de-escalate whatever comes next. You might, you should always come up with the same point that you're trying to get across, but it's whether or not I frame it in terms of how I felt having received that information. I felt hurt that you didn't tell me that you were going to be going on that work trip next week. That's much different than why did you book that flight? Mm -hmm. Totally different. But I'm telling you, I felt hurt. I felt surprised. I thought we had a conversation about this. If I put it towards me, it helps you. It gives a few more seconds for you to think about, okay, this impacted somebody else that I might not have been thinking about. And okay, maybe I made a mistake, but at least it gets me out of me being defensive about me and thinking what my action did to somebody else what they perceived it did mm -hmm. to else. so in the book we talk about it in terms of i feel statements which anybody who's been to therapy or counseling has heard about i feel statements and the way it goes in full is i feel emotion because xyz and it's really quite simple but it's super awkward unless you practice it and it just becomes the way of your conversation because most people don't lead with, I feel excited because you followed the plan that we had in mind this month. Like that's just not the normal way of conversing, but it can become more normal. I remember the first time someone had asked me to tell me how I feel and this was with a therapist. And I was like, well, I feel like, I was talking to my wife, uh, that you're doing this, 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 this. They're like, is that a feeling? I'm like, well, that's what I feel. And, and then I realized I couldn't even name my feelings. And I, I, I read the book, Emotional Intelligence. So I thought I was emotionally intelligent, but what a journey it is just to learn about your feelings, like your, your like the real feelings. And I, I really appreciate that section of the book because I think it's calling people into conversation when you can actually just name your feelings and tell people how you're feeling as opposed to, I was good at, why didn't you follow the, planned and to your point <laughs> the ensuing conversation isn't ideal yeah i'm glad you brought that up though just how difficult it is to name the feeling men in general tend to have a harder time with that than women for whatever societal generational issue that might be but we don't have to get super fancy with our emotions either but to put happy sad angry hurt those are all very simple emotions that we all know what they mean. But then just to be able to know what that looks like in you and to be able to say it out loud, it does take practice. Definitely does. And this is what I find so fascinating about, about money and the conflicts that ensue. And like you talk a lot about how, I don't have the exact quote, but money are, of course, attached to our emotions. And we've talked already, the money conversations are a conversational values. But when we kind of disarm ourselves, it seems to me about our own defensiveness and lean into why I'm feeling that way about money, like why I had to use a coupon. And if someone ever questioned that, why I would have got defensive. I learned that, holy smokes, when you, when you actually lean into that, you can learn a lot about yourself that I don't know many other things that offer such an education on ourselves than really money, money and relationships. <laughs> If we yeah. look inwards as opposed to trying to deflect it to the other person. Yeah, I agree. And even furthermore, looking at our money history, hugely revealing. And I know you've talked about this before, but just thinking about a money tree or, you know, like a family tree, but a money mm -hmm. tree. Or money genogram is another word that people use to describe it. But something to where you write it out on paper in terms of, okay, this is me. This is my wife. These are my kids. Here's kind of my behaviors as it relates to money. I like to 
save money when I can. I like to make sure I have X dollar amount in the bank before we do any sort of extra spending vacations or splurges, if you will. I'm very vigilant about my money. And then go up to your your parents and whoever else was in your household growing up and think about, okay, so what do I remember about how they handled money? Maybe they were a really big spender. Maybe they were a gambler. Maybe you had no idea of the wealth that they had because they saved it and they were a little bit miserly with their money. Attach whatever sort of money memories you can to those people and then go up another generation if you can remember your grandparents. And what happens is you start seeing these patterns and it makes total sense why you would use a coupon on your first date because that's your belief about money and that's what you learn from your mother or your father or your sister or your grandparents because if they didn't do that, it meant some sort of bad outcome for them. Probably doesn't translate to modern day quite like it did for maybe grandparents who, if they didn't watch every penny that they spent, they literally could have lost the house or something else that's hugely more significant. But we carry on those beliefs or those behaviors. And it can be problematic. I'm not saying that that was problematic, but these things that passed down through generations might have made sense at one point in time. But we keep doing those things because that's what we saw and that's what we think we're supposed to do. But sometimes it actually creates a lot more problems. It's funny you bring up the the coupon again. As I explored the reason why, like I believe that is a truth. Like you, if you aren't using a coupon, like you're you're wasting money. My wife had a different view, and <laughs> and it wasn't until like exploring my past, like that's why again I'm so thankful that therapists are individuals who explore why we think, feel, and do what we do have entered the money conversations, the money world, because it wasn't until I, I looked at my past that I realized, okay, this makes sense. And not everyone actually has had the same past as me. And they might not believe a coupon is actually essential or, or, or even required. And I think it was what your guys, like when I say your guys, is the, the, the therapy side brings to our world is that we get empathy to ourselves, which then I think opens up us the ability to be empathetic to others to realize they have their own money tree and that's why they don't believe that we should have a coupon so to speak and the last thing i say i mean this is your background now you're eliciting this out of me but when you talked about words a word that when you were talking about the person who valued family time that was me my words but i was doing emails at night because i was Uh. was the financially independent guy gonna retire our family on schedule at like 60 whatever my wife kept saying, you're so busy juggling so many things. This word juggling. I'm like, I'm not juggling things. And then as I started to look inwards, I remember one day I'm like, why am I juggling so many things when my kids are right now on the floor wanting me to play? And so I can't attest more how if we allow our spouse's point of view to come in, if it's kind, that they can pinpoint a bit of our values that we might not be seeing. That's enough about me. Uh, Tell me more, Sean. Tell you no. <laughs> I, I do have a question, and this is enough about me. A few things I want to go into here. But when we talk about this idea of, I guess, off of conflict within money, how if we lean into it, we can reveal, reveal so much of ourselves. But at many times, I hear from people, they, they don't want conflict and they avoid conflict. And that could be from whatever, I guess, their family tree has caused them to avoid conflict. When you see a coupleship that may have like no money arguments at all, could that be an indication that one or both are avoiding the discomforts and the difficult conversations of going back to maybe someone's not actually being seen or heard, but they just they just want to have peace? What if at all risk can we run if we totally avoid these conversations, these difficult conversations around money? I actually do think that they're in conflict and that happens. And I teach a managing client conflict course. And that's one of the things I point out that we all have this idea of what conflict looks like, but it actually takes on so many different forms. And your example was spot on in terms of that couple very much is in conflict if they are avoiding the conversation. It doesn't mean that if a couple doesn't have money conflict, that there really is conflict. I'm not mm-hmm, saying mm-hmm. if they're actively avoiding a conversation to avoid what their definition of conflict is, that's still conflict because we're not getting down to what the core is and we're not able to fully express our our thoughts and our emotions as it relates to that issue. And 
I don't even remember what your question was at this point, but I think we need to take a step back. And just because a person isn't yelling at somebody doesn't mean that there's not conflict. So what was your question? This idea of if there's no money conflict and and we think, well, everything's perfect, could that be a sign? And you answered it, that there's this silent conflict. And and then what's the risk of, like usually there's one dominant, you call them spenders and savers, and usually there's one dominant individual who has more of a lead role. And maybe we'll speak to that person. If, If there's no issues at all, no no conflict, do you think it's worthwhile that person asking that question, what else could be on your mind, so to speak, to open up the conversation? Because maybe that there's no conflict because the other person is afraid, doesn't feel safe. And I think I've seen through our clients that there could be a deeper issue at hand. Yeah, I appreciate that. And especially as you talk about the more quiet person and Sometimes maybe the louder person is saying that there's conflict and the quieter person is saying, oh, no, we're we're fine. Everything's great. But really, they might actually have more conflict than the person who's saying that there's conflict because they're not able to express it. So I think there's lots of ways of dealing with this when you're working with clients and particularly giving alternative ways for that person to say what's on their mind because they might come from a space where Talking about my feelings or my desires, my wants, doesn't matter. Like maybe I grew up in a space to where I had to go along with what the majority wanted or I would get absolutely nothing at all. If I showed any sort of preference or I said what was really on my mind, there were negative repercussions of that. And so we don't know that about that person. And maybe they don't even make that connection for themselves. But let's just offer some alternative ways that are different than mainstream. Tell me what's on your mind. Let's allow for collection of maybe surveys or maybe have each person, this is the way the book is set up to where they do activities on their own and then they come together and have a conversation about it. So I have to do my own work and I can do it quietly and at my own pace, but we're still going to come have the conversation. But you're giving me the space and the time to be able to put my words on paper so that they are my words, not what you say that I should be saying. So give clients some activities to do on their own. Being able to send clients information independently of one another is huge. So being able two separate email addresses. Hey, Tom, I was just hoping you could take a minute and kind of give me your feedback on, on this issue. Hey, Sally. We're going to be talking about XYZ at our next meeting. Would you have a moment to look over this document and bring it with you? So you're asking them both to bring the same thing, but you're asking them each in a different way to where I feel like, oh, okay, you actually do want to know what I have to say as a person. It's not, hey, Tom and Sally, will you bring this in next Mm -hmm. week? Because if Sally's the chatty one, she's going to bring it in and and Tom will be like, "Eh, that's fine. I agree. When he might not agree, but we haven't even offered him an alternative way of voicing his opinion. I really appreciate that. I've really given them the independence amongst each. And I think your book serves as such a wonderful tool that people can use, couples and advisors, whomever else, as ways that are very accessible. And what I mean by that, it doesn't, you know, the way you set it up is so accessible, I say, in terms of AI, yeah, you can buy it and it's, you know, it's not hundreds of dollars, but also it eases you in, I find, the way the, the workbook is set up. It's not just like this huge emotional question right off the bat. I'm like, I'm running away from that. Why did you decide to set up 15 exercises as opposed to giving a, a book that explains everything? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this. I did a podcast with Daniel Crosby recently and he was giving me a hard time because the book costs $30. And it's, I think he said 60 pages. I said, that is a huge bargain. Yeah. You're in 15 therapy sessions for 30 bucks, basically. But the reason I set it up that way is because we live in a very bite-sized world. Some of the research, I don't know how substantiated this is, but I've read that people look at their phone every four minutes. We haven't. I don't think you look, yeah. you look at your watch once, but well, that we was because checking my finger temperature. 
Yeah, yeah. We were talking about watches then. But just an average conversation, like look at your clients. They are definitely distracted, whether or not they're looking at their watch or their phone. And it's the same when you're at home. Even when you have rules that you're not going to look at your phone during dinner, we still hear the dings or the vibrations. And it takes us out of that mental space. So they're short exercises for a reason, because I want people to focus just for that small period of time, be together, do this thing, share this moment, and then and then you can go about your business. But you're still thinking about it in the back of your mind. You had this conversation and it was focused for those 10 minutes or 20 minutes that you spent on it. And then and then you can come back and have some of those conversations later. We all have tons of books that it seems like a good idea to read them. I don't know. I do know some couples, but I don't know very many couples who actually read a book together. That's one idea. And be like, yeah, mm-hmm. we should do it. Especially early on in the relationship. Yeah, yeah. We should read this book together. Let's go on a road trip and we'll read a book. And, and yeah. it might happen once. It doesn't work out because we live in this silly world where we're constantly distracted by other things, technology and other things. So I wanted to give couples the opportunity to really focus for that few minutes that they are able and willing to spend on these things. I really appreciate the the way you set it up. This reflective practice, I think, is really insightful. Where After you read it, like you said, to your point, the, the thinking continues as opposed to if I just read a definition. This might sound familiar, but it sounds like what you're doing is you're helping people through these exercises realize they've just been circling around the block to help them realize where they have to go. Thank you, Ted Klontz. <laughs> but it, this is like, as you were explaining okay. the book, I'm like, this is what you opened up with explaining, but this is what you're doing. Yep, that's exactly it. We've come full circle. We've come full circle. So I think it's appropriate, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. When I look at your work online, I see that you're an author, a researcher, a PhD, program director at Texas Tech, owner of Inlight Consultants. While the day-to-day tasks might be from writing to consulting to teaching, it seems like you fall under this umbrella of financial planning and promoting financial health and wellness. Based on your experience, your research, can you describe from Sonia's lens, what is financial wellness or financial health? So I think it's a term that we talk a lot about, but if we can't really envision it, if we don't have a direction to where we want to go, it might be hard to get there. So from your lens, what is financial health? Had you asked me this before, I would have written out a definition, but you're just asking me on the spot. So I love this because you're getting me the day. <laughs> All what right. I really think financial health is. And I what I think it is, is finding contentment and fulfillment with where I am exactly right now in life and my future self. So you're able to connect this idea of presence and future and being okay with that. And and not worrying about what my future me needs because I know that current me is taken care of and I know that future me is taken care of and I feel perfectly content and fulfilled with that's financial to me. What a good place to be. Yeah. It's hard to find, isn't it? Yeah. And I feel like part of that is accepting that it's not a postcard image. It's it's messy, but that's part of the contentment is that yeah. life isn't that about being on the top of the mountain. It's it's the journey up. So my my last question that I ask everybody is borrowed from uh, Ted and Brad's uh, Crichton course. So you might be familiar with it. It's, it's changed a little bit, I think. Let's imagine you're at end of life and you're sitting on a front porch reflecting on your life and you're looking at something that brings you peace or contentment. It could be an ocean, a meadows, whatever beautiful things are in Kansas. I'm in ocean. No oceans. Yeah. Probably similar to Canada and Alberta where I am. Yeah. Fields, prairies. We got lots of fields. Okay. We do too. So you're looking at this beautiful field or whatever it is, but you're at your total contentment and peace and ease. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children about what you've learned is a key for yourself on having a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? We just talked about it, actually. I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) And that really is. Being happy with where I am and what I have. And and that means living by my core values. I 
out of all those things that you say that I've done, a lot of that has happened kind of recently. And I think from the outset, it kind of looked like maybe I was crazy because I was walking away from very good income to start a new business and to kind of change directions in life when I was on this really steep path of financial success, if you will. But that financial success, if you will, came at the cost of family time. And it came at the cost of my personal stress. And I wasn't using the extra income for anything that was bringing me fulfillment. So I think it's recognizing what you need and being okay with living with that and not living up to some other person's standards. Be content with what you have. And if that helps you meet your your needs and helps you feel fulfilled right now and in the future, do that. Mm, wow. I really hear getting to know yourself. Yes. What a what a what a treat. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on today. For people who want to get this wonderful book with these 15 exercises, where would you point them to? And where else online would you recommend people find your online presence? Yeah. It's easy to find me at enlight.world, E-N-L-I-T-E dot world. And you'll see links to the book on that. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, Sonia Luter, or go to Amazon. <laughs> Amazon has everything. A couple's guide to love and money. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you're still listening, I assume you enjoyed this conversation. And if that is the case, I would love if you can help out the show and support us by heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, thank you and take care. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.